We're going to be in Romans chapter 5. You can open up your Bibles there. Romans 5. Picking up right where we left off from the exchange. Paul is reasoning out the gospel. And he is laying it out systematic. I mean, you want to talk about a systematic theology. It's called the book of Romans. And he is systematically, clearly explaining and walking us through. And where we just ended up was with the exchange, the reconciliation. Remember that word, reconciliation, to exchange from above, to exchange down from. An exchange from something greater to something lesser. That's truly the word reconciliation. And so picking up in verse 11 where we left off, we also exult, we boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Well, now he goes on to explain it because he uses that word, therefore. Therefore, so that we can understand. Just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world. But sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even though over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who was a type of him who was to come. Father, as we now enter into Paul's explanation, truly the Spirit's revelation of reconciliation, we pray that you will give us clarity and understanding and insight. Father, we navigate some bad doctrines that have been pulled out of this. Some wrong teachings that have been taken from this very section. We want to navigate through those and avoid those so that we can have sound biblical understanding of what it is you're saying. So help us to do that, Father. Help us to hear from your Spirit on what your Spirit was explaining to the saints in Rome across the 2,000 years of the church and now to us tonight. Give us clarity and revelation, Father. And help us to hear your voice and know your love in Jesus' name. Amen. Jerry Seinfeld once talked about being the best man at a friend's wedding. He said, I thought the title was a bit much. I thought we should have the groom and a pretty good man. You know, that's more than enough. He said, if I'm the best man, why is she marrying him? He said, we had to wear tuxedos which I'm convinced was invented by a woman. They're all the same. Let's just might as well dress them all the same. And he says the tuxedo also functions as a wedding safety device for the bride. If the groom chickens out, everybody can just take one step over to the right and the ceremony continues. (laughs) Which is why they don't say, do you take Dave Williams to be your lawfully wedded husband? They say, do you take this man? (laughs) It's ironically funny... Because it's true biblically. When one man, F.F. Bruce says, fails in the accomplishment of God's purposes, as in measure all did, God raises up another to take his place. Joshua to replace Moses. David to replace Saul. Elisha to replace Elijah. There's always a replacement waiting in the wings. Just take a step to the right and the ceremony continues. Because there's always a failure among men. So God's always has, He always has another man to step up, another plan in line. Tonight we deal with two men in biblical typology. Two men, the, the first man and the best man. Now, a biblical type or figure or picture 
can work a couple of different ways. It can either work in comparison or in contrast. So a biblical type may be something that compares to something else or contrasts with it. It can be parallels or it can be opposites. And in this case, that's what we get. Opposites, point-counterpoint, if you will, between two men. Through the one, sin entered the world. And with it, death to all. Through the other, however, we may reign in life through what Paul describes as the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness. We'll get there. But it's Paul's perfect explanation, again, of the reconciliation, because it's quite literally an exchange, what we did for what he did. The absolute best man steps in to become for us the groom. And it's a great picture. But we're going to unpack this real carefully tonight. Let's look at verse 12 again. Paul writes, therefore... Just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. Now, stop right there. First thing to notice here, the carnage of death. The carnage of death, that cruel, detached, unbiased juggernaut destroying everything in its wake. Beginning with the first man. It all began with a single bite. Bite of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Genesis 2.16 The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. Now you know, and I know, Adam did not drop dead that day, did he? He ate of the fruit, he continued to live on. In fact, a long time. Creation would have been over. If God hadn't shown a little grace there. He lived on physically for a total of 930 years, the Bible tells us. By the way, let's dispel a doctrinal confusion right off the bat. How long were Adam and Eve in the garden? Those who would waffle and waver in in the arguments of evolution would say, well, maybe they were in the garden for four billion years. That'll explain it. Boy, we're okay. We, we can make the word work for us. How long were they in the garden? Well, they couldn't have been in the garden very long. They didn't have Cain and Abel until after the fall, right? And Genesis chapter 5, verse 3 tells us very clearly, when Adam had lived 130 years, he became the father of a son in his own likeness. According to his image, he named him Seth. So Adam was 130. Seth was his third son, out of the garden. So at best, they might have been able to be in the garden, I don't know, maybe a century on the outside at length. From the point of creation, though, until the third boy, Seth, was born 130 years. If they did last 100 years, fruit free, (laughs) it would be an impressive feat for humanity. Because I guarantee you, I wouldn't have lasted a hundred years. Don't eat that fruit. That one? Yes, that don't even look at it. The one over there? Yeah, don't don't eat of the fruit of that. All this luscious, wonderful, tasty, sweet fruit you can eat from. Just not that one. That one? Yeah, not that one. Oh, the one over there? Yeah, that's the one I'm talking about. (laughs) I mean, I would be fascinated and fixed on that tree. The sin nature. How long can you go? Without sinning. 
For some of you, it was the drive here. I mean, think about it. Can you go a week without a single wrong thought? Without a single sinful action? Can you go a day? Just one day. How about an hour? Some of you are going... And by the way, you should appreciate a good long Bible study because it gives us all a shot at an hour sin free. (laughs) How long would it take you to violate God's fruit ban on the single tree? Well, God said, in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. By the grace of God, not to mention the pure atmospheric conditions of the planet at the time, he did not die in that day. But I guarantee you this much. In the day that Adam and Eve ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they started dying. That day began the decay. In fact, I would bet the moment the fruit touched his lips, he started dying. He started aging, that process. It would accelerate dramatically after the flood, right? When God decreased it down from eight, nine hundred years was typical lifespan until the flood, 120 years max. But there's a flawed theology that I want to deal with here. This whole idea of death. Death through sin, Paul writes, and death spread to all men because all sinned. And it is the doctrine of original sin. Wrong. Doctrine of original sin that states because Adam sinned, that sin is now applied to every single one of us. And therefore, we all, whether we like it or not, are born with that stain, that sin of Adam. We're stuck with it. That's why in the Catholic Church and in some others, they baptize infants. You've got to get them as quick as possible because they've got that original stain. We've got to wash the stain off. Now, I saw all three of my biological children born and they needed washing. But not from Adam's sin. They were not stained by his sin. That is a flawed theology. How dare you say such a thing, Rick? Well, let me show you why it's flawed. Get all huffy with me. Turn back to Ezekiel chapter 18. Ezekiel 18. We have actually looked at this passage a handful of times over the years. And it's a great one to go to, to understand the Father's heart when it comes to sins across generations. Watch this, listen to it. Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 1, the word of the Lord came to me, Ezekiel writes, saying, What do you mean by using this proverb concerning the land of Israel, saying, The fathers eat the sour grapes, but the children's teeth are set on edge. As I live, declares the Lord God, which is a serious pronouncement about to follow, you are surely not going to use this proverb in Israel anymore. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul who sins will die. The soul who sins will die. And he goes on to say, skip down to verse 20. The person who sins will die. The Son will not bear the punishment for the Father's iniquity. Nor will the Father bear the punishment for the Son's iniquity. The righteousness of the righteous will be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked will be upon himself. And I'm not sure how we can make that any clearer. You will not die for your father's sins, or your grandfather's sins, or your great, 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 give me an hour or so and we can get all the way back to Adam. 
your great, great, great grandfather's sin. The stain, the sin of Adam is not yours to bear. Doctrine of original sin is flawed when you look at Scripture and what God declares to be the truth. Look down at verse 32. He ends out this passage saying, Ezekiel 18.32, For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, declares the Lord God. Therefore, repent and live. Repent and live. But you might protest, people still die. Well, not as soon as we should, first of all. As with Adam. And secondly, understand that God is speaking on a grander eternal scale. Repent and live. For through repentance, especially into the cross of Christ, into the reconciliation of Jesus, we have eternal life, as Paul's going to talk about. But here's the thing, it's a very subtle nuance. Adam did kick the door open so that physical death could enter the world. And because sin entered the world, so did death through sin. And by the way, that's the single answer to the question of sorrow and sickness and suffering in the world today. That's why there's pain in the world. That's why Andrew Lafayette has had to fight this battle, by the way. Did he just call him a sinner? No, I didn't. But through the sin of Adam, death entered into the world and decay and corruption. And so ever since, we've been dealing with the fallout. The fallout of that original sin, the sin itself is not on me. But the death that came by the sin is. As it follows down the line. In fact, while I don't buy the doctrine of original sin, I would buy the doctrine of original death. Original death That because Adam sinned, death entered the world and the world started to die. We can put that on Adam. Because he sinned, decay began. And would be passed along now, as Paul says, to all of us because all sin. Because we've now sinned. And he'll say in a moment, not necessarily in the likeness of Adam. I mean, how many of you, let me just get a show of hands, ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You didn't do it? That sin's not yours. But we have plenty others to to account for, right? Doctrine of original death. Think about this. People can ignore the Bible all they want. People can reject the story, the Garden of Eden. They can say, oh, it's just folklore, it's fable. They can reject the first man, Adam, the first woman, Eve. They can reject the whole tree of knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life, whatever, blah, blah, blah. They can turn a blind eye to it all, calling it all superstition and folklore, but you still got to deal with death. Can't get around that one. It's right there. We can ignore it for a time and then we get the phone call. And we're on our way to the funeral. And we have to deal with death. You can disregard God, but all must, all will face Him. It's not a a matter of a want to, it's a have to. In our case, I hope that it's a get to. But everybody must face Him. Hebrews 9.27 It is appointed for men to die once and after this judgment. So understand this. It's a little difficult, but it's highly significant. In fact, I would say critical to the entire section of Scripture here. Death came in by Adam's sin, not yours. This will even be explained more by Paul. 
And again, that's not original sin, it's original death. That is attributable to Adam, at least until Moses and the law. Look at verse 13. Oops, back in chapter 5. For until the law, sin was in the world. But sin is not imputed where there is no law. That is, it's not assigned. It's not ascribed to someone because there's no law to say this is wrong or this is right. And in verse 14, he says, Nevertheless, even though sin was not imputed where there is no law, nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type, that is a contrasting figure or picture, of him who was to come. And this is so important. Paul is establishing an overarching theme, an understanding for us, and that is what I might call the dictatorship of death. Death is a harsh and cruel dictator, and death reigned from Adam, who sinned, inviting death in. It reigned all the way to the time of Moses, even though there was no law. It continued to reign. That word reigned, he uses that several times in the passage. You might note this. It's basiluo. Basiluo is to reign as a king. It's where we get the word basilica. And before becoming churches, basilicas were royal halls of assembly. It wasn't until after the church married the state in that offensive wedding that basilica became synonymous with church buildings. And now you have St. Paul's Basilica or St. Peter's Basilica and you have basilicas all over all over Europe. But it was originally a reigning hall for a king and that long straight hall, you know, you can imagine those halls, those basilicas. It's not really good seating. It's not really designed for the best acoustics. You know, you've got that straight long hall and you might be in the very back row and the, you know, the pastor's a tiny little ant up there on the stage. The basilica Paul uses the word five times in his point-counterpoint. At first, beginning with death. Death is the basiluo. Death is the reigning king, the ruler. Death is personified as a ruling monarch. A cruel, brutal monarch. But ruling nonetheless. And he begins there with death. And for 4,000 years, death reigned supreme. From creation... To Abraham, from Abraham to Christ. 4,000 years, death was ruler. There was very little hope. Well, there was a little bit. The Hebrews came along and started talking about this thing called resurrection. And David said, you're not going to abandon my soul into Sheol, nor will you let your Holy One undergo decay. Psalm 16. So, death reigned, even though some were questioning that, and the Lord was bringing information and insight that there's, there's more. Hang with me. Hold on. But note this, just this simple fact. As, as Paul says, death reigned from Adam until Moses. Just look at Genesis chapter 5. Just take the first ten generations from Adam to Noah. Every single name listed of the ten ends with the phrase, and he died. Adam lived 130 years, had a son named Seth, lived to be 930 years, and he died. Seth had a son, and it goes all the way down that line, all died. And note that, this is in the line of Seth. The line of Seth is a line of good men, for Genesis 4.26 tells us it was of that line that men began to be called by the name of the Lord. 
To, today we would say that's Christian. But back then, that means I'm a God follower. I'm one of those who trust in God. I'm one of God's men. And the line of Seth was a good line. A line filled with, with prophets, filled with faithful men, men like Enoch and Methuselah and Noah, who did trust in the Lord. And yet every single one died. Anybody going to question me on that? Except one. Enoch, who's our bud. Because he is a picture and type of the rapture of the church. He's a sneak preview, if you will. But all the rest died because they sinned, right? They did. All died because, no, because Adam sinned. They all died because Adam sinned. Had Adam not sinned, death would not have entered the world. They all died. You can attribute their deaths to the sin of Adam. Not their sin, but their death. Now, then they did all sin, and so death spread. But technically speaking, and and there's a reason I'm pushing on this, it may seem like splitting hairs, but it's important that we get this idea of original death. Adam did one thing, one sin, one violation, and death spread to all. It's important that we understand that, not just to blame Adam. But Paul is clear, before the law, even though sin was in the world, it was not imputed, it was not assigned to people, but death was. Death entered the world by the sin of the one man. And because Adam sinned, death spread to all people like a virus, because all sinned. But death starts with Adam. Let me ask you this question. Whose fault is it when you get the flu? Now see, Kathy wanted to blame me for Glenn getting the flu, and I just thought that was so unfair. I only sneezed on him like twice. (laughs) Whose fault is it? Isn't it funny that the first thing we do is we try to find out who was sick, who was around us, so we can blame them? Well, where did they get it? And where did they? There has to be someone we can find. Some, I, and by the way, all the sickness going around the church recently, Jake. I'm convinced. You want to blame someone, blame him. No, I mean, it, it's, like, it's like trying to pin traffic on one car. Which I did as a child. I, I remember sitting in the car thinking, there's one guy way up there that we can't see who's causing this traffic for all the rest of us. There's got to be someone in front, right? Someone that we can blame? <laughs> But the reality is, even if you didn't sin like Adam, you still sinned and you still died. But listen to how Paul says this, and we'll get this in Romans chapter 6. He says, the wages of sin is death. The wages, wages is plural. Sin is singular. What does that mean? Adam's sin opened the mouth of the ravenous appetite of death. It was because of his sin that that death comes into the world. Death is the result. The wages, in other words, wages, plural, going out to everyone of sin, Adam's sin, is death. Now again, splitting hairs here a bit. It's not that the sin of Adam is now on you, but the result of Adam's sin opened up into the world death, and now all people die. And we continue to die because we all continue to sin. So we just jump right on the bandwagon. It's like the flu. Adam was the first one with the flu, if you want to put it that way. And then we all got it. 
It's kind of like Reggie. I, I, as a puppy, Reggie bit my ear. Little little guy, cute little fuzzy. I mean, we had no idea what we were headed for. And I was playing with him on the floor one day, about the first week we got him, and he bit my ear. Now, I didn't realize that he actually broke the skin and my ear started bleeding. He's just licking the side of my face. He's a little puppy, that sweet little puppy breath, you know, that becomes so foul later. But when they're little, and he's licking them, oh, stop, stop, Reggie, stop. And I reached my hand up and brought it down, and there's blood all over my hand. I'm like, he's licking blood off my face. We've got a bona fide carnivore here. And from that point forward... Anytime we cook meat, Reggie would just freak. He got a taste of blood. My blood. I'm very careful around him these days when I have a sore or a cut or anything like that. But the bottom line is death got a taste of blood. Okay? Adam sinned, death got the taste and wanted more. Was hungry for it. Now it's not about blaming Adam, but we must understand, we must see this concept, not of original sin, but original death. Why? Because the wages of sin is death. But, Romans 6.23 continues, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul is drawing a contrast here from death to life. That death came by one man just as life is going to come by one man. Here's the contrast, verse 15. But the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one, the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by that grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. Point, counterpoint. Paul's theology of original death by Adam is now in contrast to understanding the origin of life, that is, life eternal. Life that now spreads out to all people by one man. Death spread out to all people by one man, Adam. Now life spreads out to all people who would have it by one man, Jesus Christ. The best man. The groom. The last Adam, the Bible calls him. The second man, the Bible also calls him, Jesus Christ. Listen to this, 1 Corinthians 15.45. And Paul had written about this. He more fully explains all of this in Romans 5. But he had touched on these themes before. 1 Corinthians 15.45, he writes, So it is also written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. There he is, last Adam. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man is from the earth, earthy. The second man that is, Jesus, is from heaven. Now, I'll point this out again to you when we get to 1 Corinthians, but you need to make a clear distinction here. Don't confuse these. Jesus is not the last man. He's the last Adam. And He's not the second Adam. He's the second man. I know you're all going to keep good track of that. Don't confuse this. He's not the second Adam. Listen, the last Adam... Because there is not another Adam coming. So Jesus is the last Adam. But he's the second man because after him comes multiplied millions who will be resurrected. So Jesus is the second man. More to come. Resurrected like him unto eternal life. And so far surpassing the carnage of death is number two, the curative life. The curative life. Life. 
Hebrews 9.27 says it's appointed for one once for men to die and after this judgment. So also Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of money, will appear a second time for salvation without sin to those who eagerly await Him. So just as through one man death enters the world and affects all people, so through one man life enters the world and is now available to all people. Got it? Verse 16. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. Okay, let's stay on that hand just a second here. Carnage of death, the curative life, point, counterpoint, we got to go back to point, and that is number three, what I would call the contagion of condemnation. The contagion of condemnation. Paul says very clearly there that this sin results in condemnation. So not only is there original death, but there's original condemnation. Just as death entered the world by the sin of one man, so did condemnation. A concept that would not have existed except Adam's sin, and so now condemnation is available to all humanity. Thanks, bud. Appreciate that, Adam. It's a contagion. You see, the sin of Adam, like an irreversible, unstoppable sepsis, it infects the blood of all. Even to those who didn't eat the fruit like Adam, all were contaminated by the condemnation which came by Adam. Several of you know, a year ago, two years ago this summer actually, Cheryl got really sick. And she was in the hospital, and what she had, it was determined, is what they call blood sepsis. Blood sepsis. One out of four people who get blood sepsis die. So we had a one in four chance. I didn't even realize until we were about halfway into this mess. Blood sepsis is is so terrible because what happens is you get an infection in some part of the body and it gets into the blood. And then it travels through the bloodstream and starts shutting down organs. If you don't stop it in time. And so she was in ICU and she was hooked up to all kinds of things and asked her just about what she was seeing. It was weird. Sepsis, that is what condemnation is like. It gets into the bloodstream of humanity and it starts to shut us down. It starts to take out organs one after another. It starts to wipe us out. The contagion of condemnation is such that, listen, even if it was theoretically possible not to sin, we would still be condemned. The condemnation is already here. Now, it's not possible for us not to sin. We're going to sin. There's a sin nature. We, we have that, that propensity. But even if we couldn't, even if we could possibly live perfectly, the condemnation's still there. Well, how do you know that? Because it's condemnation that Jesus took on the cross, and He was perfect. Condemnation spreads to all. Well, Rick, I thought Jesus became sin on the cross. He did. Don't mess with me. But please understand this. There is no entrance into heaven without the blood work of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let me put it another way. I've actually heard this. It's not original with me. I've heard a couple of different sources say this exact thing, and I think it really explains it well. Man is not a sinner because he sins. Man sins because he's a sinner. 
Man is not a sinner because he sins. He sins because he's a sinner. Born under condemnation, infected by that contagion. Now someone might say, well, what about the innocent child? Have you had a child? (laughs) Ain't no such thing. I mean, from birth on, they're screaming, they're crying, they're complaining, they want to eat, they want to do whatever they want to do whenever they want to do it. They've got to be trained. They've got to be shown right from wrong. What about the unborn? The unjustly aborted child? What about that child who dies tragically of SIDS? Now, everybody, you're going to have to stay with me for a few minutes because I'm going to fully answer this in a few minutes. Don't walk out, don't get upset. But hear me very clearly. All flesh, according to Paul, is condemned by Adam's sin. We all sin in the likeness of Adam, right? But death comes into the world because of Adam's sin, and so does, Paul says, condemnation. The condemnation is there. All flesh is condemned by Adam's sin. And the unborn child is flesh. Condemnation is there. Now, stay with me. You might say, well, that sounds like original sin. No, because you sinned uniquely yourself. Your teeth are set on edge by your own sour grapes. And the child in the womb will sin as soon as he or she gets a chance. The condemnation is there for all. But the contagion spread with Adam. It began with him. It spread with him. Here's another way to look at it. HIV. Human immunodeficiency virus, we're all very familiar with HIV, when it exploded in the 80s, and the whole AIDS epidemic shocked the world into the reality that we can't just do whatever we want with our bodies and think there's no consequence. But many of you know this by now, HIV originated with primates in Central and West Africa. I'm not going to talk about how it got over to humans. But it began with primates. It, it originally was PIV virus, primate immunodeficiency virus, before it became human. But you can't blame the monkeys if you contract it. It's not the monkey's fault, but it began with them. See what I'm saying? That the death that entered the world and the condemnation, it began with Adam. He is the origin, the origin of that. And came into all the world. But we can't blame him because we sin too. Man is not a sinner because he sins. He sins because he's innately a sinner. David says in Psalm 51 verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. Now there's some rabbinical folklore around that. We talked about back when we studied that passage. Some think perhaps David was an illegitimate child. But we don't have solid evidence of that. The truth remains, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 3, Paul writes, We were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. By nature. So I came into the world with that natural propensity of the sin nature to rebel against God. And this is the point that Paul is driving home. Both the carnage of death and the contagion of condemnation are overwhelmingly conquered by the curative life of Christ. Through Christ, by Christ, and in Christ only is the cure. 
And so he goes on in verse 16 saying, on the one hand is the condemnation, but on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. Point, counterpoint. The sin of Adam introduced death. The grace of Jesus reintroduces life. The sin of Adam infected all with condemnation. The grace of Jesus cures completely by justification. See the back and forth? Verse 17. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Number four, the crown of life. Paul says those who receive those who receive abundant grace and the gift of righteousness will do what? Reign. Vasiluo. It's that same word. Reigning like a king. Ruling and reigning. It's the crown of life. And the Bible talks about a crown of life, by the way. It's not easy to receive, but it's available. James 1 verse 12. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Remember Sunday? Remember last Wednesday I talked about in the first century church, it was almost assumed that suffering was part of the deal. That you were only truly a Christian if you were suffering in the process. Because that proves that God loves you enough to sanctify you and and change you and cleanse you through all that. To bring you through perseverance and proven character and hope. Right? It's not to say that we earn the crown of life, that we earn salvation. But as we persevere, as we are proven, we hope for it. And hope does not what? Disappoint. For the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Romans 5 verse 5. Jesus said to the suffering church of Smyrna, and I believe to us by extension, Revelation 2 verse 10, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. So there is a crown of life that is offered. One of five crowns, by the way. I won't go into tonight, but you can search this out. Five different crowns. We talked about the crown of evangelism on Sunday. Now there's the crown of life. And it's a crown that is available. Just be faithful. Now I love the two phrases he uses in verse 17. The abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness. Abundant is the word perisos. It means beyond measure, overflowing. It's even uh, synonymous with superfluous. More than enough. And it's the word Jesus used when He said in John 10.10, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. Parisos. And here Paul uses the same word in talking about the abundance, the overflow of grace. More than you could ever need. More than the entire world could ever need. Available in Christ Jesus. The abundance of grace. And the gift, he says, of righteousness, the gift is doria. Doria in the Greek is literally a legal gift or an endowment. It's a gift, note that, of righteousness, a legal gift. A gift. 
Goriah. He uses the word gift five times in this chapter alone, each and every time speaking of the free gift of righteousness by grace. That gift is a legal term, right? It's an endowment. What is it? Justification. Because justification is the legal justifying of us before the Father. That's the gift. Verse 18. So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so, through one act of righteousness, and this is the kicker, there resulted justification of life to all men. Now some might say, well, it's not fair that one man's transgression brought condemnation to all. Well, then I ask you, is it fair that one man's obedience brought salvation or made salvation available to all? Because that's what happened. Adam sins, death, condemnation, enters the world, everybody's infected by it, so God sends Jesus. Comes in the flesh Himself, dies on the cross, and by the obedience of one man, now everybody effectively could be saved. Salvation is available for all the whole world through the obedience of one man. Now, how is that fair? If it seems unjust that one man's life brought death, remember, one man's death brought life. Verse 19. For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made sinners. Righteous. Now, here's another phrase to think through. I am not made righteous because I do the right things. I do the right things because I have been made righteous. That's the flow of it. Now, go back. What about the unborn? What about the baby in the womb, the child aborted? The one that never had even an opportunity to sin, much less be made righteous. I never said they wouldn't be saved, did I? What I said was, they wouldn't be saved if not for the blood work of Jesus Christ. And I can tell you this emphatically, that if Jesus didn't die on the cross, every single one of the children who have been aborted across history would not be able to be saved. The grace of Jesus Christ is far greater than sometimes we realize. Saving lives that we would call innocent lives, but lives that nonetheless would be under death and condemnation. If not for the saving grace of the blood of Jesus shed at Calvary, and for that baby who cannot make the determination and receive grace through faith, I believe God steps in and does it for them by the blood of Christ. Someone might say, well, how can you prove that biblically? What does the Bible say about the infant? About the unborn? I know this much. In Luke chapter 10, verse 21, we're told that at that very time, Jesus rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit. And He said, I praise You, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that You have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to who? Infants. Infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. Let me just get a little technical with you. How might the infants have this revelation? If not in heaven. 
I submit to you that every child lost, every child aborted, every child who died is who Jesus was talking about. Wow, He knew something we didn't know. I praise You, Father. You've hidden these things from the wise, but You've told the infants who are in heaven. You have revealed it to the babes who would not have known otherwise. Because an infant, a little baby, doesn't get revelation. Come on. The only revelation that an infant brings is what they do in the diaper. I mean, that's about the only thing I can... Here's a revelation for you. But Jesus said, you revealed this to the infants. And so I wonder... Besides, what does Paul call all of this? He calls it the free gift. Yeah, the baby couldn't work for it. Exactly. This is part of the reason why I take issue with infant baptism. Because infant baptism is a work. To make sure that if we do this work, then the baby is saved. Wait a minute. I'm not saved through work. I'm saved by grace. Baptism is my outward acceptance. It's believer's baptism. I've chosen that. We're going to get into baptism on Sunday because, (laughs) ironically, Paul does in Romans chapter 6. But the point is, it's not a result of works so that no man can boast. No parents can boast. Hey, we baptized our child, Lord. Was that what saves them? Uh, It was faith in my grace. For the child who is not old enough to even have faith yet, see, this is where the grace of God is working. But yes, the five-year-old who doesn't understand and is taken. The eight-year-old who is uncertain about truth and passes away. And we mourn and we weep and we say, Lord, but we never got him in the water. We never got him baptized. We never did the work. Yes, but Jesus did. On the cross. The blood work of Jesus Christ. Now there is an age of accountability. Don't ask me what it is. It's different with everybody. But there is a point in every single life, and God knows the heart, where the heart goes, Oh, choose God. Or don't. And so we can choose Him and be saved. Or we can reject Him and not be. But God's work on the cross is a free gift. Free gift. Free gift. Again, five times Paul says it over and over. The free gift. The free gift. And for us who have lived long enough to know and to taste of the fruit of good and evil... We know that we receive the free gift by faith. So he's making this beautiful comparison. Adam to Jesus. The first Adam to the last Adam. Because there will be no other. Right? The first man to the second man. Because many other others are going to follow Jesus into the resurrection of life. But now look back just for a second at verse 14. Clarification time. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned, in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. Adam is the type, point counterpoint, the contrasting type to Jesus. And I'll give you a few examples of this, and you can come up with many on your own, I'm sure. Adam blew it in the Garden of Eden. Jesus owned it in another garden, didn't He? The Garden of Gethsemane. Adam covered himself with fig leaves to hide his sin. Jesus hung naked on the cross 
covered only by our sin. Adam hid from God in the cool of the day. Jesus was lifted up before God on the darkest day. Adam brought the contagion and the condemnation. Jesus brought the cure. And this is the whole point and why why he pushes this issue of the origin of death and the origin of condemnation coming out of one man. Paul's doing that so he can point out to us, help us understand that the salvation, the wonder, the justification, the redemption, the reconciliation, it comes from one man in the same way. Death spreads from one in the same way life spreads from the other. And it's an amazing contrast in helping us understand what Jesus did. Now, I've got one more thing tonight of huge, huge significance for us. Verse 20. Continuing this thought, Paul writes, The law came in so that the transgression would increase. Increase? What does that tell you about the law? I'll just read this to you. The law of the Lord, Psalm 19.7, is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous all together. They are more desirable than gold. Yes, than much fine gold. Sweeter than the honey, the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors, David writes? Acquit me of hidden faults. Keep back your servant from presumptuous sin. Let them not rule over me, and then I will be blameless, and I shall be acquitted of great transgression. He says, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. The law. The law is perfect. Absolutely perfect. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew 5.17, Do not think that I came to abolish the law. Or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. I got in trouble for preaching that once. I was teaching a class through the book of Galatians to a bunch of teenagers. And one of the elders of our church was sitting in and listening to the class I was teaching. And I I pointed to this very verse. Talking about the law versus grace and how grace saves us and how the law is perfect and doesn't pass away. And Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish it. And after the fact, the elder came to me and said, he said, that was good teaching, but I really take issue with the fact that you say that uh, Jesus didn't come to abolish the law. I'm like, really? I didn't say that. Jesus did. So you're going to have to take it up with Him. Jesus said, truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. What does that tell you about the Hebrew Scriptures? It's perfect and it's valuable. And it is still important for us today. It's the whole Word of God, Genesis to Revelation. It's not the New Testament. Forget about the Old because it's irrelevant. No, it's not. I had a marvelous time with my kids on Monday morning talking about Jesus throughout the Bible. I told them, and you should have seen their little eyes light up. I said, I'm going to give you the key today. The key to unlocking the Bible. And they're like, oh, we get a key. And the key, as you all know, is Jesus. 
We went back to Genesis 22, looked at the story of Abraham and the sacrifice of Isaac, or the supposed he was about to sacrifice Isaac and the Lord stopped him. And I asked my kids, why is this story in the Bible? Well, it teaches us about faith. And it teaches us about obedience. And it teaches us about all these things. I said, yeah. But that's not why it's here. It's here because a father loved his son enough to sacrifice him. What does that sound like? And Anna Maria just kind of went... (laughs) She said, it's Jesus! And I said, right. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have life. It is these that testify of me. John 5.39, the key. And so Jesus says, all of this is valuable. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever keeps and teaches, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. But understand this. God did not give the law for mankind to keep. To teach, yes. To pursue, sure. But to keep, the truth is, God knew we couldn't keep the law. That's why He gave it. And so when we read Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect, it's sure, it's right, it's pure, it's clean, it's true. You read through that, you start to understand, it is perfect. But if the law, perfect as it was, was given to make man perfect, why then in this same psalm does David pray for acquittal? Stop praying for acquittal and just keep the law, David. He couldn't. You can't. I can't. The law was too perfect, so the transgression increased. All the law did was shine a huge flashlight on the light in the dark corners of our sin. All of a sudden, remember, sin was not imputed from Adam until Moses. Because there was no law, so who knew what was right, what was wrong, we just did the best we could. And then Moses comes along, and God brings the law, and we went, that's wrong? Not supposed to do that? That's a violation? Oy vey! (laughs) I'm a sinner. And God says, exactly. The law came in so that transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. That is, grace became even more fantastic than ever it would have been before. Now we recognize how unworthy and un, you know, unworthy we are. And he says, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign, Basiluo through righteousness, to eternal life, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Sin here is again personified as a king reigning in death, but grace is a greater king. Grace is also personified reigning in righteousness unto eternal life. 1 Corinthians 15.22 For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. And it is also written, 1 Corinthians 45, The first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam, that is Jesus, became a life-giving spirit. And the contrast is complete. Two men, two kings, two reigns, a reign of death and a reign of life, and the choice is yours, and the choice is mine. 1 Corinthians 15.56 tells us the sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But 
Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He really is the best man. Why would she want to marry that guy when he's the best man? He's the groom. He is the perfect one who gave it all for the bride. And that is the exchange. That is reconciliation. And that's what Paul is describing and explaining to us in this section. They came into the land of Moab, Moses and and all the people. And you know, Moses sinned. He sinned. It wasn't by striking the rock. That wasn't a sin, although God said, speak to the rock, and he struck it. But God still brought water for the people. The sin was that he yelled at the people. The sin was that he misrepresented God. He was angry when God was not. And so because he sinned, Moses would not go into the promised land. But there in Moab, on the west bank of the Jordan, so-called, actually on the east bank of the Jordan, he spoke to the people. He gathered the congregation of Israel. He said in Deuteronomy 30, verse 19, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse. So choose life in order that you may live, you and your descendants, by, and notice, here's how you choose life, by loving the Lord your God. By obeying His voice. By holding fast to Him. For this is your life and the length of your days that you may live in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob, to give to them. And so we can, even in a dying world, even in a condemned race, we can choose life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Father, we thank You for the clarification. We thank You for the amazing contrast. And we praise You, Lord Jesus, that You became for us the last Adam. There is no other. You became for us the second man because there would be many others, including those of us gathered here tonight, saved by grace. Saved, Lord, from the condemnation that should be ours. Saved, Lord, from the death that is absolutely ours because of sin. Saved to live with You forever. Father, I can only speak for myself, but tonight I say I choose life. I choose life in Jesus Christ. And Lord, I know that is on the heart of my brothers and sisters tonight. Would you quietly just say that to the Lord? I choose life. I choose life. Father, hear us tonight. By faith in Jesus Christ, we choose life eternal. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.